Hey, this is Rich Wilkerson. I'm the pastor of VU Church in Miami, Florida, and this is our podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out today. I hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Like I said, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are now four months in. I don't know, is anybody bored yet? Because I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm loving it. If you know me at all, you know that I am a slow, chill, quality time kind of person, and I love a good conversation. And so that's exactly what this has been. It's been this six-month conversation that we're continuing. And tonight we're picking up in Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bible, you can go there with me. Pastor Don Cherie brought an unbelievable message last week out of this same chapter. So we're actually going back a little bit. This is our study. We can do whatever we want, okay? Don't get religious. I know we're, we're, we're going forward, but uh, we're jumping into Mark 10. And last week, Pastor Don Cherie preached about these two back-to-back stories that maybe you, you didn't see a connection in before, but I love this idea that uh, these gospel writers, they're, they're pairing these stories together to offer us contrast and to give us insight. And so we saw these kind of different stories as, of Jesus talking to, firstly, his two of his best friends, James and John, and he asked them a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? But then just a little bit down the road, as he continues his journey, he runs into a man we call blind Bartimaeus. All these poor people in the Bible, we identify by their weaknesses, <laughs> their problems, their ailments. But uh, his name's Bartimaeus. And Jesus, he asks him the exact same question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And the answers reveal a world of difference in the heart, the desires of the people that Jesus is talking to. James and John, we saw they want to, they want to change of position. They want to be great. They want to be on Jesus's right and left in his glory. But Bartimaeus, he wants a change in his person. He says, I want to see again. It's a simple but beautiful request. And it resonates with me because that's what I need Jesus to do for me. The, the heart, the, the issue at the heart of what I'm going through, that's what I need him to solve. Not some outward external thing, but I, I need him to help me to see again. And uh, it's an incredible story. We're actually jumping back just one story in Mark chapter 10. We're going to jump in at verse 17. And it goes like this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed. They said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Today, I, I want to talk to you from this thought, you have a paradigm problem, 
you have a paradigm problem. Will you pray with me? God, we just thank you today for the opportunity to gather in your name. We're grateful for the chance to open your word. And we know that every time we do that, you speak to us. And so I ask that you would work through me, God, that you would illuminate your word in the hearts and minds of everyone listening, wherever they're tuning in from, God, anywhere in the world. We know that you can meet them right where they are, right in their specific situation and circumstance. I don't know what they're facing, but you do. I don't know their name, but you do. And God, I just pray for them today that you would speak directly to us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and ultimately, God, that you would change us. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Come on, everybody said, amen, amen. You know, I am uh, the father of two young children. If you can't tell by my outfit, this is my dad <laughs> outfit today. Um, I'm a dad to two kids and uh, my son, Roman, actually, I'm just gonna show a photo because they're too cute not to. So you can check them out and see how cute they are. Um, Roman is four and a half. He's gonna be five this year. And my daughter, Olivia, just turned two. And these guys are crazy, but they're, they're unbelievable. They're the best. Uh, I love my kids so much, but, you know, kids are, they're costly. Like, I'm talking, like, financially, like, children, they, they cost a lot of money. Uh, but not only do they cost a lot of money, they cost a lot of other stuff. Like, they cost you a lot of sleep and a lot of energy and a lot of time and your kids, they, they cost you a lot of playground trips. And, uh, you, you know, they're, they're costly. They, they require a whole lot. But my kids are my kids. You know, they're, they're, they cost a lot, but they're priceless to me. They have nothing really practical to offer me. You know, like my son has no job. <laughs> my kids contribute no rent. Uh, my daughter, Olivia, like, she, she barely knows anything. You know, like, nothing. she can't count. These kids can't read. They have nothing of practical value to offer me, but they're priceless to me. There's nothing that is worth more in my life. I, I, I love, they're my kids. They're my, my children. And we see uh, in Mark chapter 10, we're, we're kind of like, more than halfway through the story now. We've been following Jesus for a while on his journey, and we're introduced to a new character, but we don't really get much about him. We don't know his name, and we don't know his background or his story or where he came from or how he ended up where he is, but he gets kind of a dramatic entrance. Uh, he comes in, it says that he runs to Jesus, and he falls on his knees, and he asks him a question. And so we already see right off the bat, his body language is telling us a whole lot about what's going on. So we don't know his name, we don't know what's going on, but what we do know is that he's running to Jesus. And so in general, but especially at this time, that, that's a sign of desperation. That's a sign of urgency. Like I, I need to get to Jesus. He runs to him and then he falls on his knees and that's a sign of submission. So we don't know why, we don't know what's going, we don't know what brought him to this moment, but we know that he's serious about what's about to happen. This is not a casual encounter for the man. He, he runs to Jesus and he falls on his knees and he asks him this deep question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And 
there's more significance to the question than the man himself even realizes. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But for now, he, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he's saying is, I, I, I want eternal life. And I get this sense, I get this feeling that Jesus, you can help me figure this out. He, he runs to Jesus, he kneels and, and he asks him this question. But what's funny about Jesus is that he, he, he doesn't always go the easy way with you. He doesn't always give you exactly what you want, how you want it. In fact, rarely, if ever, does he do that. He, Jesus answers the man's question with a question, which is frustrating. He says to him, what must I do? He says, why do you call me good? He says, no one's good except God. And so the, the man is coming to Jesus looking for a, a simple behavior. Just give me the steps. What, what do I got to do? I'll do it. And Jesus, he's, he's not satisfied with staying on the surface. He always wants to go a little bit deeper. And so Jesus, he starts by challenging the man's perspective. And the way he does it is he, he, he first challenges the man's perspective on himself, on, on Jesus, who he is. See, the question, why do you call me good? No one's good except God, implies another question, which is, what do you believe about me? Who do you believe that I am? Why would you call me good? Because only God's good. So what are you implying? He's challenging the man's perspective. And the, the problem is he runs up to me, he says, good teacher. That's how he approaches him. He's trying to be honoring. He's trying to be respectful. He doesn't realize that he's implying something else. And so as Jesus uh, challenges him, what he's saying is, you're, you're coming to me as a teacher asking for eternal life. Like, that's not what teachers do. Teachers don't give eternal life. They give lessons. And so if you're coming to me for a good moral lesson, you're not going to receive eternal life. You see, the, the, the point is kind of like this. If you come to Jesus as a teacher, all you'll ever get is a lesson. But Jesus didn't come to give good moral lessons. That's something that he did. But he came to bring exactly what the man is searching for. But it's not a lesson in good behavior. And so if you approach Jesus as a teacher, you're never going to receive what he really wants to give you because you're looking at him all the wrong way. See, people in our culture, we like Jesus as a teacher because Jesus is unintimidating as a teacher. Lots of people, yeah, I, Jesus is great. I like what he's got to say. I like this and that and this lesson when he, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and all the nice things about the poor and the meek. But you can't, you can. If you go to Jesus as a teacher, cool. All you get is a few principles for life. And it works, but you're going to miss the point of why he came. He didn't, he didn't come for that. So he, he challenges the man's perspective on him. But then don't miss the subtle challenge to the man's perspective on himself. Because Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. I think what he's also implying is, so you come saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you think you're pretty good. Like you think that you could earn it. If you just knew what to do, you feel like you could do it. And he's challenging him going, either I'm God or I'm not good. And either you're God or you're not good. <laughs> he's, he's taking it deeper, but he lets the convert, he humors the man. He, he wants to keep talking and they can get to the heart of the issue. And so 
Jesus says, you know the commandments, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, the man says, teacher, I, all these things I've done since I was a kid. Notice he doesn't call him good teacher again. He's a, he's a quick learner. He's learned his lesson. But what this shows me already is that the man, rather than leaning into the possibility that Jesus is more than just a teacher, he's backing away. Rather than open himself up to that possibility, he, he's backtracking. And this doesn't really bode well for the rest of the story. And what, what is Jesus doing? He's reminding the man of the law. So this man, he's grown up his whole life in this Jewish culture, knowing the Ten Commandments, knowing the law, studying it, memorizing it, and doing his very best to obey it. And apparently, he thinks he's doing pretty great. He goes, yeah, yeah, no, the law, you know, I've done all that. What else? So he's got this confidence, but at the same time, there's hope for him because he has this sense of his own inadequacy. Yeah, I've, I've done this, I've done that, I've, I've done that, but what else? He, he has this sense that there's something he, he lacks. He's missing something. If he didn't feel it, he would never have come to Jesus and asked the question in the first place. Yeah, yeah I know the law and I, I've done it. First of all, he hasn't. <laughs> there's no way. But he feels pretty good. He knows that he's missing something. You see, you and I, we can convince ourselves that we're doing all right. But if we're really honest, we know we're not good enough. Like we know that there's something missing, that there's something we lack, that we're, we're not measuring up to some standard. And so Jesus, he's, he's trying to lead the man to the answer he's looking for. And then comes probably my favorite verse in this whole story. Jesus, it says he, he looked at him and he loved him. How good is that? He looked at him and he, he loved him. And part of why I love this verse so much is because it's right in the middle of the story. So like, nothing's really happened yet. This guy came, he asked the question and he said, yeah, yeah, I've done everything. But before, we don't know what he's gonna do. Is he gonna repent? Is he gonna realize that he's a sinner? Is he gonna submit to Jesus? Is he gonna change his whole life? We have no idea. But before he does anything, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. You see, sometimes you and I, we wonder if God's paying attention. And other times we hope he's not looking. He, he looks at them, he sees the man, even in his error and in his self-righteousness and in, in his situation, right where he is, it says Jesus sees him. And you and I, we wonder if God sees us. And sometimes we want him to see us. And sometimes we don't. Or sometimes we wonder if he sees us and he doesn't really like what he sees. Maybe we think God does see us. He just doesn't approve of us. And I love it because it doesn't just say he looks at the man. It says he looks at him and he loves him. God sees you and God loves you before you do anything. Before you realize you're wrong and before you get the right answer and say the right things, before you've performed or whatever it is you think you're supposed to do, it says 
God loves you right there in the middle of your story. He looks at him and he loves him. I, I heard a preacher say it this way one time, we silently fear if people really knew me, they would never accept me. But God really does and he already has. He, he already loves you right there in the middle of your mess and in the middle of your stories. You're on your knees in the dirt coming to him for an answer. He, he looks at you and he, he loves you. One thing you lack, so Jesus is gonna tell you the truth. This is the truth in love. One thing you lack, he says, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And I think this is where we could get lost in the story. I think this is where we could get a bit confused because this is not really a story about money. And this isn't really a story about generosity to the poor, but it gets confusing because Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have. But you've got to understand the story within the context of the gospel because that's the filter for everything. By the way, that's a good hack for reading the Bible. Like you've got to filter and understand everything in the context of the whole thing. So if you pull a story out, that's when you get messed up. Some people think this story is about Jesus wants us to be poor and have nothing. It's, it's not the heart of the story. He says one thing you lack, but then he gives two instructions. That's why it's a little confusing. Like one thing you lack, sell everything you have and follow me. So what's the thing, Jesus? Well, in the context of the gospel, what's the gospel? We understand that the gospel is that we were dead in our sin. We could do nothing. We were powerless, helpless to get ourselves out of it. What can you do when you're dead? Nothing. What must I do to inherit? Nothing. You, can't, you could never earn it, deserve it, work for it. And so we're dead in our sin, powerless, but thank God he sent Jesus to come to the earth, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, to take our place, to take our punishment, rise from the dead, and to give us this free gift. It's called eternal life. That's the gospel. So the story is definitely not if you do this one thing, you'll be saved. That's sell your stuff. That's the requirement. It's not, the point is that uh, selling everything and giving to the poor is, is not a requirement for salvation. What's the one thing that the man lacks? We know the answer. It might be confusing if you're just looking at the story. The answer is faith in Jesus. That's what he lacks. It's not about his behavior, but Jesus is getting to the heart of his issue. He lacks faith in Jesus. It's about following him. But the thing that's holding him back is he's got a lot of stuff. And so this is not some universal requirement. This is Jesus speaking very specifically and very intentionally to the man that's kneeling in front of him. What he's saying is you're never going to receive the eternal if you're clinging to the temporary. You've got to let go of that stuff. Jesus is not trying to like punish him. He's trying to free him. He's trying to help him get exactly what he came to ask for. The man just doesn't like the answer. Let me give you some more context. Jesus, we can understand him through the context of himself, what he said in, in his most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. What did he say about stuff and about treasure? He said, don't store up treasure on earth but store up treasure in heaven. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does that tell us about what Jesus is trying to do for the man? 
He's trying to reposition his heart. He's trying to help him shift his value from earth to heaven. He's trying to move him into a spot where he can receive eternal life because eternal life is not a thing of the earth. It's not something you can hold or buy or work for or earn. But this guy's thinking through his lens of money and wealth and purchase and what can I do and how do I earn it and how do I achieve it? And the point is salvation is not achievable, it's receivable. You, you have to think about it differently. He's trying to shift his heart and really like for us, if we're gonna take hold of eternal life, we're gonna have to let go of earthly things. It's a requirement. You, you can't grab onto this while you're clinging to that. This man, he's, he's got a bunch of stuff, but he doesn't know it's the other way around. He thinks he's holding on to what he's got, but he doesn't know what he's got is holding him back from what he really desires, which is eternal life. So Jesus, he's not trying to punish him. He's trying to, he's trying to give him what he's looking for. He's trying to set him free so that he can follow. But the man, he misses the message. He misses it entirely. It says that at this, his face falls and he goes away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. He wanted the eternal, but he had too much of the temporary and he just couldn't let it go. Listen, I'm not like a mathematician, but like a lot of nothing is worth nothing. Doesn't matter how much of it you get or how many times you multiply it, nothing is nothing. This man, he's, he's got so much of this temporary stuff that he won't let go of it and hold on to the eternal. But Jesus isn't anti-treasure. He doesn't say don't have treasure. He says, don't store up treasure on earth because it's going to disappear. So store up treasure in heaven because it's going to last forever. The man's just thinking about it all, all wrong. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul and forfeit his soul? The man comes to Jesus, he says, what can I do? How can I earn it? How can I buy it? What must I give? And Jesus says, how about everything? How about everything? How much is eternal life really worth to you? Like, what would you give to gain it? A better question maybe for us today is what wouldn't you give to gain eternal life? Like, what's the one thing you just can't let go of? What's the one thing that you go, everything but this? Yeah, I've done everything. What else should I do? Okay, sell your stuff and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he thinks he's losing. But Jesus is not punishing him. He's actually inviting him. The saddest part of this whole story to me is that the guy, he, he heard the instruction, but he missed the invitation. Like, thank you. <laughs> he, he, why did, he heard the instruction because he came for an instruction. He didn't come for an invitation. That's what he's listening for. What should I do? What should I do? And he hears the instruction part, but he misses that Jesus says to him, come follow me. Jesus is not trying to take from him. He's extending the greatest invitation in the history of the world, a phrase that 12 other people in history heard from Jesus himself. He says, come follow me. And the guy goes away sad because he really, really liked what he already had. He just... He leaves, he gets out of there. And Jesus looks around, he says to his disciples, man, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are concerned. 
okay? Like how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Again, don't miss the point. Is Jesus saying money's bad? No. Is he saying it's, it's, it's bad to be rich? No. Is he saying rich people can't go to heaven? Definitely not. What he's, what he's, I was thinking about it this week. Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? What's the difference? I think it might be, okay, before that, for, no one thinks they're rich, okay? Very few people. Maybe Jeff Bezos knows he's rich, but <laughs> most people don't, don't think they're rich. But listen, I don't know where you're tuning in from, but for me, like, I live in Miami, Florida, in the United States. So, like, being in this city, in this country, at this time, I'm pretty much, like, doing better than just about everybody in the world. Yeah. Not because I earned it. It's, it's, the, it's the geographic lottery. <laughs> you know? My dad was born here, so I could move here, but I just know that like, I'm doing all right. So for today, I, you can do whatever you want. I don't know your situation, maybe, you know, but I'm gonna include myself in the rich because I'm probably doing better than 98% of people in the world. So don't think, you know, those rich people need to get it together. Like this is like you and me. Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? I think it's because we have the wrong paradigm. I think we have a paradigm problem. What, what's a paradigm? A paradigm is a framework for reality. A paradigm is a mental model of how you see the world, how you interpret it, how you filter, how you understand it. And uh, the, the word paradigm has been around a long time, but the modern sense or the technical sense of the word uh, was originated in the 60s by this guy named Thomas Kuhn. He was a scientist. In the 60s, he wrote a book and he popularized this idea of a paradigm shift. That's a common phrase we say a lot. He made it up back in 1962. And he was a scientist, so he was talking within that context. And what he said in his book is that science goes through two alternating periods repeatedly over and over again. You go through a period that he calls normal science, which is when everyone's operating under the same paradigm. We think the same way. We, we interpret and understand the world the same way. We know how to gather data. We know how to conduct experiments and get results, right? That's normal science. But then the second period is what Kuhn calls revolution. This is the time when the paradigm itself undergoes a radical change. What does that mean? It means we change the way that we think about everything. The paradigm shift means that our mental model for understanding the world itself is changing. So we go normal science into revolution, normal science into revolution. My wife told me to give an example of a paradigm uh, to make it simpler, and I think I'm going to make it more complicated. So back in 1900, there's this guy named Lord Kelvin, and he famously said one of the dumbest things ever, which was, there's nothing new to discover in physics. All that's left is more and more precise measurement. What does that mean? He's saying like, yeah, you know, we figured it all out. We know the answers and we're just gonna keep studying and learning. And five years later, Albert Einstein published a paper on special relativity and he flipped everything upside down. So the system they'd had for 200 years is no longer relevant. That's a paradigm shift. That's a revolution. We, we used to think this way and now we realize we were wrong in these ways. And the new paradigm, it subsumes, it, it absorbs, it encompasses everything the old one did, but it explains more. Are you with me? Does it make sense? That's a paradigm. Why is this relevant to what we're talking about today? Because the right answer won't make any sense if you have the wrong paradigm. So this, I think this is the heart of what's going on with the rich young man. He comes to Jesus 
asks a question, he gets the answer, but he can't process it because he has the wrong model for how things work. He's a, he's a rich guy, so he's used to like buying stuff. He's used to paying for what he wants. Like, how much does it cost? So this is almost to me like the equivalent of him coming to Jesus and pulling out his checkbook and saying, name your price. Like, what do I, how do I get it? I'm used to doing this, a transaction. And Jesus, he says to him, you know, it's not for sale. And he's like, no, everything's got a price. You just got to find the right amount. And he's like, no, no, you're, you've got the wrong paradigm. Like you're, you're thinking about it all wrong. You will never enter the kingdom of God, not because you're not good enough, because your paradigm prevents you from hearing the truth. We've got a, a, a paradigm problem. And the biggest barrier, according to Kuhn, to a paradigm shift is what he calls paradigm paralysis. And that's our human tendency, our natural tendency to resist and reject any idea that challenges the way we already think about the world. That's called paradigm paralysis. The flip side of paradigm paralysis is what's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is our tendency to look for examples that confirm things that we already think and to ignore evidence that doesn't line up with our current beliefs. This is the formula for ignorance, in case you're looking for it. <laughs> paradigm paralysis, oh, I don't like that idea. It doesn't make sense based on what I already think and what I already know and what I already believe. And confirmation bias, oh, of course, see, this says this and this says that. What about this? No, that doesn't make sense. I reject it. People do it all day. They, they just ignore the sources that don't agree with them. So they hear something they don't like and they find a reason why, oh no, she's an idiot. Well, that's not a good argument. It's called paradigm paralysis. We're stuck in this faulty way of, of thinking. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples are amazed at his words, but he says again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Kind of a weird thing to say. I was thinking about this this week. Why is it hard for the camel to go through the eye of a needle? Sounds like a dumb question. Like, what's the problem? It's too big. See, I think a lot of us, we think the reason we can't enter heaven or we can't get eternal life or we can't do whatever is because we're not big enough. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not obedient enough. The problem is you're not, too big, you're, you're not small enough. You see, the kingdom of God is big, but the door, the door is small. And if you're too big, man, you just, you'll never go through. You've, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to admit that you're inadequate. You've got to be honest with Jesus. And you got to ask for mercy. I, what must I do? I, I know I can't do enough. I know I can't earn it. I, I know I'm not good enough. It takes humility and talk about the door. Jesus is the door. He's the way, he's as narrow as the gate. So God invites you into this big world, but man, to get through the door, you gotta get small. That's the problem with the camel. It's, it's too big for the eye of the needle. And the disciples, they're even more amazed before. Like, okay, well then who can be saved if it's 
easier for the camel to go through eye of a needle. We know that's never happening. Who can possibly be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, it's impossible. It's not possible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. So I've heard people try to explain away this part of the story, like, oh no, the, the camel, it, you know, the, the eye of the needle is a gate in Jerusalem and camels used to go through there all the time and it was really busy and it's hard to get in. Stop. The point is not explaining away the difficulty. Jesus is trying to make it impossible. He's not trying to say, well, you know, it's really hard. If you try, you could maybe do it. He's saying there's no way. You could, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. He, he's not trying to make it easy for the man. The man says, what must I do? He says, yeah, there's nothing you could ever do. You will never be good enough. But he gives him the answer. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think Jesus gives him three basic steps, like admit that you're not good enough. No one's good except God, right? Let go of what's holding you back. So for him, you got all this stuff, get rid of your stuff and then follow me. It's that simple. Like, it's the formula. It's a practical formula for a practical guy. What do I got to do? He just didn't like the answer. It just didn't fit within his paradigm. You know what's the craziest part of this story for me? Is that the man had the answer to the question in his question. He just, he couldn't see it because he was looking the wrong way. He says in all the way back to verse 17, where we started, as Jesus started on his way, the man ran to him, kneeled, and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you got to do to inherit? It's a self-contradictory question. There's nothing you can do to inherit. The right question is who must I be to inherit eternal life? It, it's, it's not something you can do. It's not something you can do. So let's think practically about inheritance. Who gets the inheritance? The child of the person who has it. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? Well, you gotta be a child of God. So if you're not a child of God, it's impossible. Unless somehow you could be born again. Who must I be to inherit eternal life? That's the right question, but it didn't fit within his paradigm. This man, he comes to Jesus, he kneels and he says, what must I do to inherit? Little does he know he's not kneeling before a teacher. He's kneeling before God himself. And Jesus, he doesn't have the answer. He is the answer. And what this man doesn't know is that Jesus is literally on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die, to provide the very thing he's seeking. Why? Because an inheritance, man, it's not given until the death of the decedent. It's a fancy word for like a dead person. The inheritance isn't passed on to the child until someone dies. 
So he comes to Jesus and he has no idea how spot on he is. Yeah, you're right. It's not a matter of work. It's a matter of inheritance. You, you got to be born again. You must be born again. Last week, we, got, we asked God to change our person. This week, we got to ask him to change our paradigm. We're not going to get the answer thinking the way we used to think. You see, this is not like a, a slightly better idea. This is a new mind. This isn't like an improved attitude. It's like a new spirit. This is not like, you know, getting a little bit better. This is resurrection. It's not, it's not achievement. It's, it's inheritance. It's a totally different paradigm. You see, like the kingdom of heaven, how do you get in? Well, you got to be born in. You can't buy in. You got to be born in. You can't like be sworn in. You got to be born in. You can't break in. You've got to be born in. You've, you've got to be born again. It's, it's not a matter of worth. It's a matter of birth. You have to be born again. My children are awesome. Did you catch what Jesus called the disciples? He said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. My kids don't have a lot. They don't have any money. They don't have any job. They don't know a lot of stuff. But you know what kids have? They got the right paradigm because a kid can't buy it and a kid can't earn it and a kid can't work for it and the kid can't deserve it. He's got to ask. got to ask for it. Children, they don't have a lot, but they got the right paradigm. See, the paradigm of the world is worth through work. But the paradigm of heaven is worth through birth. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying to the man. He's not saying do better. He's not saying work harder. He's not saying, oh, you're almost there. You're near perfect. You just got one flaw. You're not generous enough. That would be to totally miss the message. He's not saying you're almost there. If you could just get over your greed problem, that's the one thing that's holding you back. No, that's not it. It's faith in Jesus because through faith in Jesus, we're born again. And through our rebirth, we become children of God. And through being children of God, we receive everything. Kids, they don't work for it. They don't fight for it. They don't try to earn it. Kids, they just ask for it. And if you and I are going to inherit eternal life, we are going to have to have a paradigm shift in our minds. We, can, we gotta stop thinking worth. We gotta stop thinking work. We gotta stop thinking earn it. You have to be born again. And I don't know if there's any better transition than that. I think there are people all over the world right now tuning in. You might be in your living room. You might be in a coffee shop. You might be in the bathroom at the gym. I don't know. <laughs> but 
I believe God's speaking to you right now. What he's saying is, you must be born again. You've been asking, what, what do I do? I know I'm not good enough. I know I'm lacking. I'm missing something. I feel it. I've tried everything. It's because you've been, you've been operating in the wrong paradigm. It's not economics. It's not a stock exchange. It's a cross exchange. You can never earn it. You can never deserve it. You just got to receive it. It's a free gift. It's called eternal life. And I want to give people today an opportunity to make a decision, as we always do, to follow Jesus. Because the simple invitation that Jesus extended to the man thousands of years ago is the invitation he's been extending to everyone since. Come, follow me. If you haven't made that decision, it's really simple. It's impossible on your own, but with God, it's pretty easy. All you gotta do is receive it. And so I wanna lead you in a prayer. Wherever you are, you know who you are. It's not my words, it's the Spirit speaking directly to your heart. I just wanna ask you, if that's you today, if you wanna receive Jesus, if you wanna receive eternal life, if you wanna enter through the narrow gate, through the small door into the big kingdom of God, why don't you repeat this prayer after me? We're gonna say it here in this room too. Say, Jesus, I thank you that you died the death that I should have died. You lived the life I should have lived. You took my punishment. You took my place. You didn't die just for my sin. You died as my sin. And because of you, I can live. And so, because of your resurrection, I receive eternal life. I admit that I'm a sinner, that I'm not good enough, but I receive the free gift of life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, can we celebrate with everybody? Why don't you stand to your feet? Come on, we're going to worship together. Well, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, consider rating it and even sharing it with friends. It helps so much. For more content from VU and to connect with us, go to vuchurch.com. We love you. The best is yet to come.